Hello, Chris here speaking from the future. I'm just recording this little update to let you know that since we recorded this episode, I've made some family trees for episodes 30, 31, and now 32, which I put up on our Facebook and Twitter pages yesterday, uh, if you're listening to this on the day the episode comes out. And we're going to be collating them all on our Facebook page on an album there. We realize a lot of these names and who is married to who and whose kids are related to who is all a bit confusing. So hopefully uh, these family trees should be able to give you a little bit of a helping hand if you're getting confused about who is who. And uh, yes, so I hope you enjoy the rest of this episode. Back to Orsa and Chris. Hello, and welcome to a new episode of a Flatpak History of Sweden. This time, it's four murders and a funeral. I'm Elsa. Hello, and I'm Chris. Yes, uh, that's a bit of a spoiler for what's <laughs> going to be happening to some of these kings as we go. But uh, yep, it's all good fun. Except for the people who got murdered. Yeah, except for them. <laughs> this is our third episode in a row where we're looking at all of this family royal drama in Sweden and who is taking charge at various points in time. And uh, we ended last week as King Sverka was murdered in his coach on the way to church on Christmas Day, which is very dramatic. Yeah. This is murder number one for this week. But before we get on with the rest, we should start with our Swedish phrase of the week. Yes, our Swedish phrase of the week, which this week is skjuta mygg med kanon. Okay. So it sounds something like shooting mosquitoes with a cannon. That is exactly what the English translation is. Shooting mosquitoes with a cannon. It means to use unnecessarily complicated methods to reach a goal or to make something harder or more difficult than it needs to be. So I guess the thinking is that if you want to get rid of mosquitoes, you don't really need a cannonball. Yeah, and I think uh, in English we say like using a hammer to crack an egg. Yeah, I have never heard that, but you're the native English speaker. Yeah, no, I'm pretty sure that's a phrase. Or using something to crack an egg, but yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know. A good example would be maybe to uh, like, if you have a tiny plot of grass in front of your house, you don't really need to get like a tractor to mow that might be too big to even get in on your little plot of grass you could have just mowed it with a little hand lawn mower but in the swedish phrase does it mean that you try something so complicated then then it doesn't work or just you could have done it easier both i'd say yeah so if you tried this with a tractor you could say oh he's shooting mosquitoes with a cannon yeah. so it's not gonna work yeah or if you come up with this 25-step plan to boil an egg when it only takes two steps, that's but it still works, yeah. you can still say it then. I, I'd say so, but our, our native Swedish speakers... Of which you are one. Of which I am one. But I, what I meant to say is that other listeners are, are welcome to weigh in. I might not be using the phrase correctly. That, that's what it is to me. Okay, cool. So shooting mosquitoes with a cannon, uh, shooting and killing kings is what we'll hear a lot about in this episode. But no shooting with no. cannons just yet in Swedish history. And no mosquitoes. No. As in the story either. Just killing. <laughs> We're starting this story in 1156 on Christmas Day, as, as you said, Chris. Sverkor lays dying either inside his coach or, or just outside. Saxo Grammaticus, the Danish almost by now contemporary historian, says that this was planned by a Danish prince called Magnus, who returns to our story in, in a little bit. In fact, let's introduce him just now, especially as he is murder suspect number one. Or, or really, he is the only suspect. Um, of course, that doesn't mean that he's guilty, but let's see. So this Magnus, his full name is Magnus Henriksson. His father was a Danish lord and illegitimate grandson of Sven II. Remember that Danish king who had five sons who all became king, including King Niels that we mentioned a lot during the recent Danish civil war. 
So that's who this Magnus is related to. His mother, however, was the daughter of Inge the Elder's only son, who died just before he could become king of Sweden. So this Magnus is a great-grandson of a Swedish king and a great-grandson of a Danish king, albeit through a couple of illegitimate births and faffy bits. Yeah, so in modern day terms, he'd be a bit under the radar, but as we'll see now in uh, Middle Ages Sweden, he's very much not under the radar. Seems like it. Uh, This Magnus might have had Sverker killed, but if he did, he didn't seem to have a decent or like concrete follow-up plan. There isn't an obvious play for the throne that is recorded. Instead, a man called Erik becomes the elected king. This is going to start off decades of wars and feuds between these two families, known as the Sverker dynasty and the Erik dynasty. And now is when we get to introduce the quite bonkers historical tradition of numbering Swedish kings, because despite only being the second recognized king called Erik, or the fourth, if you count the brief civil war period between the two Eriks after Steinschild, this Erik, who becomes the elected king now, is known as Erik the Ninth. The Ninth? Oh, this is when Swedish history becomes a bit confusing. So why do we have this random numbering system is a very legitimate question to have. Well, it's because far ahead in the future in the timeline, actually all the way in the 1600s, a man called Karl becomes king. And he sits down and he studies a fictional make-believe list of Swedish kings and decides that instead of being uh, whichever Karl he should be, he's actually going to be Karl Ninth, going back in time and thinking there's been eight other Karls before him. In his list of Swedish kings that he studies, this new Eric is Eric the Ninth, even though he's actually probably really the only second true Eric of Sweden. So from now on, we'll be mentioning quite a few kings with really high numbers in the official modern list. But don't worry, you haven't missed four or five episodes somewhere when we start talking about the Ninth Eric. Yeah, no, it's just think that all the numbers are pretty much random, and this is all... Yeah, thanks a lot, Carl Ninth, for messing up the entire Swedish list of regions. It's actually this that explains why our current king is called Carl Sixteenth Gustav, even though there hasn't been 16 Karls before him. It's just been decided that this system, even though it's wrong, is just too entrenched by now to be changed. So we just have to go with it. Yeah, we all know that Carl Twelfth is the guy who went to Russia and fought. And so, it, yeah, if we try and change him to become Carl Sixth, just everyone in Sweden won't know who we're talking about anymore. So we just have to go with it. Yeah. Anyway, back to the story. Eric the Ninth, not, but yes, Eric the Ninth is now king. We actually saw his relics in Uppsala Cathedral a few months ago, if you remember, Chris. Yes, we did. And we're going to put a picture on social media to follow this episode. So that is perhaps a bit of a spoiler for what kind of king he might be that he ends up in the cathedral. Yes, or does it? Because the thing with Eric is that a lot of our information, if we can call it that, comes from another fictionalised legendary account of his reign, written a hundred or so years after his death. And this legend has been studied for centuries by Swedish historians, and there's really no real conclusion about how accurate it is, apart from the fact that a lot of it is made up. For a start, it tells us that Eric was of royal blood and was unanimously chosen as king of Sweden when there was a vacancy in the kingship, which would be about now, but it also states that Eric reigned for ten years, 
And judging by when he dies, this would put the start of his reign at some point in 1150. And if this is true, that means he would have been king when Sverka was still alive. So this is one reason to doubt this legend, as in Sverka's story, we don't have any evidence that there was another king around fighting for control of the country. So most historians just say that Eric becomes king after Sverka's death in 1156. However, this doesn't appear to go that smoothly, as just two years later in 1158, Sverka's surviving son, luckily not that serial rapist, terrible, crazy son, but the slightly less bad son, Karl, is recognised as king, but only in Östergötland. So there's a little bit of this split starting already. Eric does appear to be the king of all of Sweden still, but this is just an indication that it's once again beginning to fragment, just like back uh, in the previous episodes where you had different people as king in the different regions, it's now starting to happen again. The king of Sweden is not king of all of its smaller provinces like Sverker was during his reign. Whether or not there was a large of animosity between this Karl in Östergötland and Erik in Greater Sweden, if we can call it that, we don't really know, but there are a few hints. Indeed there is. There is a suggestion that Karl allies himself with Magnus, the potential murderer, to remove Erik from the throne, but more on that shortly, because first... Let's step back in time a bit to the early 1140s. At this point, Erik marries Christina, a daughter of one of Inge the Elder's daughters. So when Erik becomes king of Sweden, he is married to the granddaughter of Inge the Elder, whilst his rival is the great-grandson of Inge the Elder. So quite tenuous connections for both of them. Especially when Karl is the son of Sverka, the murder victim whose body is pretty much still warm, <laughs> whilst these various levels of grandsons of Inga the Elder are fighting out over the throne. <laughs> exactly, but for now, at least for a year or so, Erik appears to be king of Sweden alone. According to the legend, he spends a lot of time on religious matters, However, the only reliable source mentioning his reign comes from a religious chronicle from around 1200, which mentions that Erik and Queen Christina actually harassed monks at Varnhem Abbey in Westerhjertland. How do you harass a monk? Please explain. It seems quite amusing, as apparently Queen Christina argued with these monks about ownership of the land of Varnham Abbey. She claimed that one of her relatives had left it to her as an inheritance, and it shouldn't be owned by the monks, it should be owned by her. She then harassed the monks until they left the abbey. And how did she do it? Apparently, she sent naked women into the abbey to dance in front of the monks. <laughs> yeah, that's a very odd kind of uh, harassment, although I guess even modern-day priests wouldn't really appreciate naked women dancing in front of them. I mean, I don't think anyone unsolicited, none of us would like to have naked women dance in front of us. Well, I don't know. It could be... I don't, not when I'm, like, I'm working away, I'm concentrating on something else, you know, I don't want it to all of a sudden naked women appear dancing. I do think that that is significant harassment. It's also... Not nice to the naked women. I mean, let's just hope that they consented to the naked dancing, because otherwise, really, this is a loose-loose situation. The, the monks are harassed, and the women are forcefully dancing naked. No one wins here. True. So, yeah, what happens then? Well, the monks left in 1158 and went to Denmark where they set up Vitskull Abbey on the Jutland Peninsula. The royal couple soon reconciled with the monks though and after a few years Varnhem Abbey was allowed to start to be an abbey again albeit in a slightly different place in the religious structure in Sweden. So yeah. 
yeah, they get different bosses in the church system, effectively. Um, but yeah, there is one other major event that Edric is known for, although a lot of people think this is actually entirely fictional too. This is the first Swedish crusade to Finland. Ooh. Yeah, it's very exciting. Uh, we won't go into too much detail about this right now, partly because most people don't believe it's true, but mainly because we'll cover it later on once we reach the real first substantial Swedish involvement with Finland, and we'll do a recap then of all the potential beginnings previously. But the basics of this story is that Eric, along with the English priest Henry, who was supposedly priest in Uppsala, travelled to Finland at some point between the 1140s and 1160 to subdue the pagans there who were raiding Sweden. And the vast majority of the information comes from this later legend about Eric, and most believe that this crusade is almost entirely fake. Um, but we'll return to that in a later episode. One key thing to mention is that there was obviously lots of fighting and supposedly Eric led the troops in battle in this uh, crusade. Yes, but let's return to that in a later episode because now, in the real world, a conspiracy is building. It is now the middle of 1160 and Karl, the son of Sverker, has firmly established himself as the king in Östergötland. It is now that Magnus plans his next move. A bit late, you might think, but still. According to the legend of Erik, he gave great gifts and promised great things to the nobles of Sweden, including, quote, a mighty man in the kingdom. Due to what happens next, this could quite possibly mean Karl. So eventually, this comes to a head at the Feast of Ascension in May 1160. The two conspirators gather a force of men, sometimes called an army, and head to confront Erik, who is at church in Östraoros, which is modern-day Uppsala. And apparently, Erik was told that an enemy army was approaching, but refused to leave the church and made sure he completed mass. Yes, of course, as he was so extremely devoted to religion, you can't just leave mass halfway through. Nope. So he then gathered the few men that was actually in the church with him, picked up their weapons, and they headed outside to confront Magnus's force. Uh, but unfortunately for Eric, he had hardly any men, and he was attacked, mocked, and then beheaded. Um, yeah, so he's dead. Uh, yeah, that's it, he's that's dead. murder number two. Yeah. Eric was buried in the church at Uppsala, the part that's nowadays called Old Uppsala, actually in the church we visited when we went there on our trip, like we said. Later on, his body was moved to what is Uppsala today and Uppsala Cathedral, where we have some actual bones. There are real relics to examine. And by saying we, I mean modern-day researchers can examine them, not Chris and I can examine them. Yeah, because whilst we're relatively popular podcasters, uh, I don't think Uppsala Cathedral or the church or even the current king would uh, appreciate us going digging around the bones in the cathedral to see what we could come up with uh, <laughs> from looking at them. No, good idea. But luckily in 2014, some actual scientists were able to examine the bones in this casket and they are actually remarkably consistent with Eric's life story. Uh, the relics contain 23 bones from one person and then there's apparently a random unrelated shin bone thrown in there as well. Surprise shin bone! <laughs> But carbon dating of the bones show that they are consistent with a death in 1160 and that they are from a man between 35 and 40 years old who was 171 centimeters tall. So far, so good. Indeed. The skull is dented by one or two healed wounds that may have been due to weapons. And this could have been from his maybe possibly not very true crusade to Finland. The legends say that in the king's final battle, the enemy swarmed him, and when he fell to the ground, they attacked him uh, when he laid on the ground nearly dead. 
They then taunted him and finally cut off his head. That's not nice at all. Uh, the remaining bones have at least nine cuts inflicted in connection with death, seven of them on the legs, and then a cut neck vertebra. Yeah, it seems pretty conclusive. Uh, there's lots of talk in the reports about how he was probably wearing some armour, so there aren't any wounds on his chest and so they had to attack his legs and then they would have maybe had to take off the armor before they could behead him um so that makes it in line with the mocking because then they would have like captured him for a brief moment first to take off the armor so they could behead him because the armor would have covered his neck Uh, so there's lots of detail in this report if you want to read it yeah and it's pretty cool it seems like these relics are probably actually eric and the story kind of uh kind of works out uh at least the death part uh, because of the nature of his death and also that he was such a pious religious man in life eric is now actually the patron saint of both sweden and stockholm he's known today as eric the holy The coat of arms of Stockholm to this day is just a picture of Eric's head with a crown inside a shield. Uh, So if you search for that whilst you're listening, coat of arms Stockholm, uh, you'll get to see a timeless representation of the king, I suppose. Whilst he is the patron saint of Sweden and Stockholm, and he's treated as a martyr, he isn't an official saint in the Catholic Church. The Pope never quite got round doing that. And because Sweden isn't a Catholic country anymore, and hasn't been since the Reformation in the 1500s, being the saint of Sweden, it means that Eric doesn't get quite as much attention as, say, St. Patrick in Ireland. There's no big yeah, St. Eric's Day where everybody gets drunk and wears yellow and runs around in the streets. No, and we don't colour any rivers for him or anything like that. So I feel a bit bad for him. He uh, he gets to be the patron saint of a country that doesn't care. And isn't even technically a real saint. Yeah. <laughs> in the Pope's eyes. He must be up there with all the other saints just kind of looking at St. Patrick in, in envy. Maybe. I don't know. But um, that's it. His um, real life and the fictional accounts, it's all very interesting. Yeah, and whilst he might not be a a real saint, so to speak, uh, when we went to Uppsala a few weeks ago in real life, uh, we saw that his body was moved to Uppsala Cathedral, um, supposedly which was built on a location near where he was murdered or on the site of the old church where he was in when he was murdered. And actually, Pope John Paul II came to visit his bones in 1989, and there was a nice little plaque on the floor there. Yeah, I should say that John Paul II didn't come to Sweden specifically just to check on these bones. There was a papal visit to Sweden in 1989. Yeah, he wasn't sitting uh, reading his diary or reading sort of, you know, the History of Popes magazine and thought, oh, I should go and uh, go and see how this Eric guy is doing. And it wasn't the only thing the Pope did. He obviously sort of interacted with the Swedish Catholic community, but... Yes, we did also pray at the bones of Eric the Holy. So that's a bit of a a consolation prize. You get a papal visit, but you don't become a saint. Um, But yeah, so over the next sort of century or so from uh, his death, Eric becomes a pretty big deal. A lot of Eric's story is naturally politicized and either attacked or hailed by the various successive kings in this period and so this makes a lot of the information unreliable as we mentioned especially as now he's beginning to start this dynasty and we'll see members of his family become king later on and they obviously want to praise him as much as they can to give themselves some legitimacy he's actively promoted as this saint and martyr by the swedes but this doesn't really take off outside of Sweden. Some people are quite cynical and believe this is just done by his descendants to try and rival the Norwegian and Danish saintly kings like King Olav of Norway. So even now in the 1150s and onwards, people are still a little bit sceptical about how quickly this king, who was only around for a short period of time, can actually be made a saint. 
Um, we'll come back to this later on in perhaps the next few episodes or so as we see how Eric's story grows in the decades to come. But back to the timeline now in the 1160s, because standing over the body of Eric in 1160 is Magnus and potentially Karl, that king of Osterjotland. Whether or not this was a real alliance, we might never really know, but it does seem it's, it's maybe 50-50. Regardless, if there might have been a plan to kill Eric, we know that Eric's son, Knut, was not killed. He escaped. Uh, some unreliable sources say he went to Norway, but he went somewhere and managed to leave with his life, which is most important for later on. And if there was a plan between Magnus and Karl to somehow share the kingdom or power after Eric's death, this all quite quickly falls apart. So quickly, in fact, that Magnus is usually seen as a usurper and not necessarily a proper king, as he certainly didn't have the time to stake his claim over the whole country. One thing that Magnus did have was powerful allies. Uh, he had a half-brother on his mother's side, who was the king of Norway, but he died early in 1161. Uh, Snorri Sturluson states that Magnus had a Norwegian half-brother, so that's the case, called Orm, which is quite a great name. Orm means snake in Swedish, so that's a cool first name to have, Orm. Orm supposedly fled to Sweden in 1161, when Magnus was supposedly king here. These Norwegian links didn't help him, though, as at some point... In that same year, 1161, Magnus is killed in a battle against Karl at Örebro, which is in sort of south-central Sweden, a few hours away from Stockholm. According to Saxo Grammaticus, he fell in a battle against Karl, quote, whom he also intended to deprive of his crown after he had first deprived him of his father. That is quite a cool line uh, after he had first deprived him of his father, which obviously implies that uh, Magnus did kill Serka. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, which one of these two men provoked this battle? It's not certain. Saxo Grammaticus regards the death as Karl's revenge against Magnus for killing of Serka. So if this is true and Karl killed Magnus as revenge for his father's death, it seems unlikely that just 12 months before, the two men would have been able to put their differences aside to remove Eric as king. Surely Magnus wouldn't have trusted Karl enough to share a kingdom with him, nor the other way around, if he'd supposedly killed Sverka. So perhaps Magnus did not kill Sverka back in 1156, and so Saxo Grammaticus's claim about an alliance against Eric with Karl was correct, but just that their relationship turned sour quite quickly. Or perhaps it was the other way around. Magnus did kill Sverka, but there was no alliance with Karl, but instead some other unnamed person in the kingdom. This is perhaps the most likely way round, and as this would explain why so soon after becoming king, Magnus might attack Karl or Karl attack Magnus, with the two men not feeling safe having part of the country being run by Magnus's old enemy's son. And this would explain the phrase about Magnus wanting to deprive Karl of his crown in Jutland after having removed his father a few years before. Whichever the case, Sverker's house is now back on the throne. The murderer, potentially double murderer, has been murdered <laughs> by Karl, who is now king. So uh, let's give our listeners a few seconds to guess which number in the king list this Karl gets. I'm going to guess five. Nope. Uh, this first Karl is actually Karl the Seventh. So uh, thank you, Carl the Ninth. Ah, Carl the Ninth is so rubbish, just messing everything up. Yep, he is. But Carl the Seventh, this current Carl, has a lot of things on his plate at the start of this reign. Most importantly, the Sverker dynasty is back, and he has to rebuild it. Just five years after the murder of Sverker on Christmas Day, Carl Sverkerson, which is his full name, is king of Sweden. 
Seeing as he was already recognised as king in Östergötland back in 1158, he seems to have been recognised quite quickly across the whole country, undoubtedly helped a bit being the son of Sverka, who was a strong and stable monarch. Karl manages to complete quite a few things in a short period of time. In 1163, he married a Danish noblewoman from Skåne called Christina. Her grandfather was actually the Danish lord whose murder by Danish prince and wannabe Swedish king Magnus started the infamous Danish civil war 30 years before in 1131. Oh wow, there are so many links back to the previous episodes. Absolutely, it's one big blobby mix of people and families and events. It is for sure, but... Yes, this is quite a good marriage for Karl, and the couple soon have a son called Sverker. This is so not imaginative. These people just keep giving new people the same names. Yeah, I feel sorry for the listeners who effectively everyone is Magnus, Karl, Sverker, or Eric. Yeah. And that's it. (laughs) Then... After Sverker, baby Sverker is born, comes a few big things that Karl gets to take a lot of historical credit for, even if it's only really luck that it is him and not his predecessors or successors that are on the throne. First, we have that he is the first king that is expressly titled Rix Sverurum. Et goturum, uh, which is my horrible Latin for saying king of the Swedes and the Geats, or Jötar in Swedish, for those of you who, like me, speak rubbish Latin. Yeah, and this is pretty cool that it's the first time this is written down in an official form, and this is given in a papal letter in 1164. This papal letter is actually very important for its contents as well as the title given to Karl, because this is when Sweden gets its very first archbishop. Whoop, whoop. Hooray. If you remember when we mentioned in our Sverker episode about the visit of future Pope Hadrianus IV, that English Pope, to Sweden, and how in the end Sweden didn't get an archbishop back in the 1150s because Sweden was arguing internally about where the archbishop should be based. Uh, Well, now it seems that the Swedes have made their minds up and decided that Uppsala should be the place for this archbishopric. This papal letter is a reply to a request from Karl, the Swedish bishops, and the Jarl that they want this archbishopric. And this reply says that the Pope has decided to create the archbishopric and give the title to a man called Stefan. Stefan was a former Cistercian monk who helped found Alvastra Abbey, founded by Karl's parents, Sverka and his wife, 21 years earlier. Because the Cistercian monks in Alvastra were typically foreign-born, and because of this archbishop's slightly non-Swedish name, some historians think that Stefan is either English or German. One book we read said he was definitely English, and others are a bit undecided about whether he's English or German. Either way, he's not Swedish, so that's pretty cool. And it would be a tiny bit more fun if he was German, seeing as the current Archbishop is from Germany too. So the first and the current, that would be quite cool. That would be a nice full circle. But yes, as we mentioned previously, this new Swedish Archbishop actually has to sort of report to the Danish archbishop down in Lund and not directly to the Pope due to the deal made between Hadrianus and the Danes. Also, from between 1164 and 1167, we have the oldest preserved document written in Sweden, which is a letter from the archbishop Stefan to the Abbey. It is also the oldest example of a document sealed with a royal seal, which shows the king on the throne holding an orb of some sort, and then there is a counter seal that shows the king on horseback. This is super cool. So it's one step up from a coin, I guess. And his coins are quite every day, whereas this seal would have been used by the king or his at least closest servants and writers. Uh, I like the idea of a royal seal. Yeah, it is quite funny. 
whenever I hear seal, as in, you know, that stamp thing, I just want to think of the animal seal. Yes. Um, but talking of religious matters, the people of Verend, near the uh, Danish border in Sweden, said that they want to give Carl some money to sort of persuade him to support the installation of one particular bishop in Vexhö against other candidates, which is quite interesting that the king has been uh, given these, essentially a bribe. Um, and later on, Carl also donates land and privileges to Vreta Abbey and Nidala Abbey. Some historians say that the location of these donations suggests that his main political interests might have been in the province of Östergötland and Småland, where these abbeys are located. Östergötland certainly makes sense, seeing as this was uh, where he was declared king before he was king of all of Sweden, so he probably wanted to either reward or shore up his support in this area. I think it's quite interesting that we actually have a lot more evidence for Carl being very religious than Eric, who is supposedly this saint. But that might just be what we have surviving in the sources for us. But Probably. Another thing that happens in Carl's reign, or perhaps even uh, in Sverker's reign, is that Ners Castle is constructed. And this will quickly become a favourite royal residence because it's located on an island in the middle of Lake Vettern but more on that later on. Also in 1164, very busy year for Sweden, uh, Carl gets involved in foreign policy once again. And for the second time so far in our story, it's to do with the Novgorod Republic. Yes, we told you they'd be back. Uh, it's now 22 years since the first Swedish attack on Novgorod ships that uh, we have on record. 55 boats were sent east to attack Ladoga and the area in the east of the Baltics. Uh, the Novgorod Chronicle has a short account uh, of this. Would you like to read it, Chris? Yes. So it says, The Swedes approached Ladoga, and the people of Ladoga set fire to their dwellings and shut themselves up in the town with Posadnik Nezhata. That's the word for mayor, Posadnik. Uh, and they sent for the prince and the men of Novgorod. The Swedes came right up to the town on a Saturday, but could do nothing to the town and took more harm themselves, and they retired to the river Vorone. The fifth day after this, Prince Svatoslav arrived with the men of Novgorod and Pasagnik Zakari and turned upon them. On May 28th, the day of St. Uyale, on Thursday, at five of that day, they defeated them with God's help. Some they cut down and others they took. They had come in 55 boats, 43 boats the men of Novgorod took. Only a few of them escaped and those were wounded. Interesting stuff indeed and weirdly specific time that we know that they came at five o'clock. Five o'clock on Thursday, May 28th. <laughs> that, that is so, like, I wonder if they had that in their, like, Google or Apple calendars. Like, five o'clock, kill Swedes, six o'clock, dentist appointment. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> Remember, we mentioned that the princes and mayors of Novgorod were elected. So this was actually Prince Svatoslav's second term as Prince of Novgorod. So he was presumably a decent leader as they re-elected him, and as evidenced by his destruction of the Swedish invasion. So only 12 ships, Swedish ships, made their escape. So as a pretty high-profile defeat. No wonder that the Swedes have no record of it. Yeah, let's just let, let's forget about that. Silence. Nobody mentioned uh, Ladoga again. Yeah, nobody mentions Ladoga. That's the Swedish take on nobody mentioned the war. Yeah, um, but perhaps this sort of foreign policy failure led to some grumblings against Karl's rule. There were definitely enough murmurings of some sort of discontent as after only six years as king of all Sweden, Karl was attacked and killed on the 12th of April 1167, either in or by the newly built Ners Castle on Visinger Island in Lake Vettern. The Vestergötland Law, which is soon approaching in our timeline, describes Karl's reign as such. He owed his dignity to his good father. He ruled Sweden with wisdom and goodness. So that's a nice description for him. Mm -hmm. 
But his murder, who was the culprit this time? Well, they were supporters of who else but Knut, the young son of Eric the Holy, who had been in exile since his father was killed. So the Eric dynasty is back after just seven years in exile, and the Sverka line is now seemingly in exile. That This is very much the name of the game. They go from exile to power, exile to power. But it isn't quite that simple this time. The Sverko dynasty won't just sit there and take this lying down. Unfortunately for them, Karl's son is only a few years old, so definitely not old enough to have enough supporters to fight for him to become king so young in such a violent time. In fact, the young Sverko escapes to Denmark with his mother, which is a better idea than to fall victim to Eric's dynasty. However, I am sure everyone remembers Sverko's eldest son, John the Rapist. That's like the, the antithesis of John the Baptist. Or oh, Eric the Holy and John the Rapist. John the Rapist, bad man. He had two sons, possibly three, and by this point, they are just about old enough to be the leading members of the dynasty until the young Sverker comes of age. And so they take up arms against Knut. Well, at least they are probably sons of John the Rapist. Some older historians say they might even be sons of Sverker himself, but that seems less likely as that would have made them too old. Uh, others just say they were close relatives, so the family relations are a bit unsure. Yes, but either way, these two men, called Kohl and Burislev, are operating out of Östergötland, the by now Sverker's family's traditional power base. But their resistance, while it potentially lasts up to six years, isn't that effective. They lose a number of battles and both are killed. Uh, most likely in separate battles, one first and then one a few years later, and Knut becomes sole ruler of Sweden, usually dated from 1173. The Sverker dynasty are now dead or in exile. The Vestergötland law states that Knut I won Sweden with his sword and killed King Kohl and King Burislev and had many battles against Sweden and was victorious in them all. Uh, good for him. However, before we can continue Knut's story, it is time to introduce a third family into this story of warring dynasties, one which will remain with us for nearly 200 years in one way or another. This is because in 1174, just one year after he seems to have consolidated his rule over all of Sweden, a man called Berger Brusa is appointed as Jarl of Sweden. His name Brusa means the smiling, which is quite nice, mm. uh, especially compared to the rapist. <laughs> yeah. Um, maybe he was so smiley because of all the wealth and power that sources mention he had. We know that he owned land in no fewer than four different counties of Sweden, which at this time implies he had enormous wealth. Now, Jarl is that political position that we've seen described in both medieval documents and the sagas as being a leader who is quite clearly second only to the king. It's only that we haven't really seen much of them in the Swedish side of our story so far. We've only a few brief mentions here and there, but they've been very important in Denmark and Norway up until this point. They take big positions in battles and politics, so it's now arriving properly in Sweden. Yeah, uh, the position of Jarl in Sweden takes a dramatic leap forward with Birjabrusa. He is really the one that places the Jarldom in center stage. In fact, from now on, the Jarls become so important that Professor Dick Harrison, who we mentioned quite a lot, excellent historian for medieval Sweden, he has written a monster 600-page book. Uh, with tiny writing. Yeah, a 600-page book with tiny writing about this called The Jarl's Century. It's a great book both for understanding the meaning and the importance of the Jarl position, 
and just to learn more about Sweden in this time period in general. So who is Bjelbrosa? Well, he comes from the house of Bjelbo, and actually this family had at least one Jarl in Sweden before him that was Folke the Fat, not a nice name to have, who was Jarl around the time of Inge the Elder and was actually probably the first Jarl of all of Sweden. But that is essentially all we know about him, and Bjelbrosa is the first Jarl who has records showing how important his role was. The year that Brusa becomes Jarl, he gets a younger brother, nice, called Magnus Minneskjöld, soon to be followed by a third brother called Karl the Deaf. Both of these will return in the story in their own right. Uh, without spoiling too much, Call the Death will become Jarl later in the story, whilst two of Brusa's sons will also become Jarl of Sweden and one Jarl of Norway, plus one son of Magnus and one of Karl will also become Jarls of Sweden. So it's a dynasty of Jarls, really, you could call it. Professor Harrison describes them in his book as being the three brothers who laid the foundation for the dynasty's later formidable power position in Scandinavia. Yes, and it's going to become in the future quite hard to overstate the importance of this Bielbu family. Berger Brusa was actually married to Brigida, or Bridget as she's known in English. With her, he had seven children, who we actually know the name of all of them, which just goes to show how much more detailed sources are starting to become in this period compared to a few hundred years earlier, and also how important this family will become. We also know that all of them went on to play an important role in either Swedish or Norwegian political life, itself just one of the signs of how nepotistic the power structures in Scandinavia was at the time, with the ruling class essentially consisting of a few individuals who all knew each other or fought each other as we've seen in the last few episodes. This marriage is actually quite important in a political sense too, because this Brigida was actually briefly married to the Magnus who had the throne earlier in this episode. So that might have been a little bit awkward for Birja Brusa, as Brigida was married to Magnus when he killed the current king's father, Eric the Holy. So... Yeah, that's that's politically quite a big leap to take yeah. when uh, Knut's main political backer and leader in his country is married to the woman who was previously married to the person who killed his father. So I hope you're following this. Um, regardless of any social awkwardness these uh, two people might have had at dinner parties, Knut and Berja Brusa seem to have had a very close working relationship. So close, in fact, that a lot of historians say that Berger Brusa actually held the real power in the kingdom and that Knut was a weak ruler, with Berger Brusa being the puppet master behind the throne. Some more historians say it was, it was just a, a good partnership of two strong, powerful men. Either way, the relationship between these two slowly starts to transform Sweden into a modern European country with an emerging bureaucracy. Written documents and laws are becoming increasingly important, and there are nine preserved royal documents from Knut's reign. The majority of them are written down as being witnessed by Berja Brusa, a process where Berja Brusa is acknowledged as being present when it was signed or part of the writing process of the law he basically is involved in some way of uh, producing these laws and sometimes it's the queen sometimes it's other political people but now the jarl seems to be the main person involved in writing these laws and this is also another first because these nine written documents are the first personal letters or documents written by or for a king of Sweden. Yeah, and this is really important. Uh, unsurprisingly, a lot of these new documents have to do with 
Christianity in some way, especially the monastery at Viby in Sigtuna, which we saw being mentioned in letters during Karl's reign as well. Not only this, but we see the reintroduction of royal coins after around 1180 with the inscription Canutus Rex or just Canutus. The coins are supposedly of German style, which might be connected to Knut's relationship with northern Germany, uh, because at some point before 1180, Knut, with a great deal of help from Brusa, formalized a trade deal with Duke Henry the Lion of Saxony. This deal concerned the town of Lübeck, and this is one of the things that make it seem like Sweden really entered the modern medieval world. Trade deals are a big political concept even today, so it's fascinating that we're seeing this sort of thing enter the record in Sweden. Obviously, we had traders going round to places previously, but they weren't formalised in this legal sense before. We've only briefly had a few things like in Constantinople about the rights of the Rus visiting and where they could stay in the city, but that wasn't for a kingdom and a country, it was for a group of people, and they weren't even necessarily Swedes. Some historians also point to the fact that this sort of trade deal is indicating that the importance and general number of towns is increasing in Sweden at this point, something that we'll look at great detail next week when we look at the founding of Stockholm. So, in addition to Henry the Lion of Saxony, Knut and Brusa also sent three separate envoys to another Henry, this time being Henry II of England, in around 1185, and we know that Knut received pieces of armour in return. This would have been the first diplomatic contact with England, rather than just the purely economic trips, such as when uh, Olaf Huertkonen recruited his English minters nearly 200 years earlier. Yeah, this is nice. I like to see Anglo-Swedish relationships forming. Also in 1185, Knut's sister, Margaret, marries the Norwegian king Sverre, who had taken the throne of Norway the year before. Uh, the two countries maintain good relationships throughout the two men's reign. One Norwegian rebel was supposedly arrested by the Swedes and kept in a stone castle on the island of Visingsö, which leads to his nickname becoming Steinweg, or Stonewall in Norwegian. Uh, whether or not this is true, it's debatable. Yeah, uh, it seems to be that this Steinweg uh, wants to create stories about how great he was um, later on in his life. So yeah, but either way, it's an indication of how close Norway and Sweden were at this time with the two kings working together. What isn't questionable, however, is that two years later, in 1187, Sigtuna is effectively completely destroyed by raiders. Oh no! Yes, and the chronicle of Duke Eric from a few decades later has this impressive piece of poetry about the event that uh, is going to read out. Sweden then suffered serious harm from the Karelians, causing great alarm. They sailed into Lake Merlare from the sea, whether calm or stormy it might be. Secretly within the Svealand Isles, in stealthily advancing files. Once their minds to the idea did turn, that they the town of Sigtuna should burn. And so thoroughly they put it to the flame, that it since then has never been the same. There Archbishop John was killed, a deed that many a heathen thrilled. Thank you for that performance. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. I like how even uh, in the translations, you know, you can translate poetry either by the meaning or translate it also into sort of the rhythm and the rhyming. So they've done a good job at, uh, at doing that. That was uh, uh, from a book called The Chronicle of Duke Eric, a verse epic from medieval Sweden. Um, but yes, in case you couldn't follow the slightly odd rhyming poem, a fleet of pagan Karelians, that's the area a bit north of Novgorod in sort of Estonia, Finland sort of area, entered Lake Melloran in 1187 and ravaged the coasts. 
These marauders burned Sigtuna and killed Archbishop Johannes, called John in the poem, who had only recently taken over as the second ever Archbishop of Sigtuna, spending just over two years in the role before he was killed. Wait, what is it? For hundreds of years now, just anyone who tries to be a religious leader in Sweden end up dying horrible deaths. So sad. Sigtuna, the proper hub of religious, political and economic life in Sweden, is essentially wiped off the map. As we know from our visit there, it did slightly recover, it is still a, a town, but the destruction gives Swedish monarchs, yarls and businessmen the opportunity to start a new town somewhere better. And over the decades, they do this by creating... Stockholm. Welcome to Stockholm. But much more next time in our next episode focused entirely on the foundation of Stockholm. So we won't really mention it uh, too much today. But for now, let's just say goodbye to Sigtuna. Knut and Börjabrosa don't just sit there crying about this. They start fortifying the entrance to Lake Mälaren by modern-day Stockholm and also organise a counter-offensive. In 1188, the Novgorod Chronicle mentions that Novgorod was plundered by the Varangians in Gothland and gave no envoy to the Varangians, but they sent them away without peace. Berja Brusa seems to have maybe even personally led another fleet of Germans and men from the Swedish island Gotland across the Baltic Sea in the 1190s, either just before or just after Knut's death. We don't have an exact timing, but this time they attacked the people on the coast of Estonia. The source for this is a Latvian priest called Henrik in the 1220s who said that they were trying to get to Novgorod but then heavy winds blew them to Estonia where after three days of ravages they forced the people to convert to Christianity and give them money. Uh, Again, this isn't clear if it was in Knut's reign or just after because, spoilers, Berja Brusa will stay in his job a lot longer than Knut will. Exactly, because in either the winter of 1195 or on the 8th of April 1196, it's an oddly specific second option, but anyway, Knut dies. And he dies from natural causes. Hooray, no murder and no conspiracy. Uh, This is the first king since Philip, eight monarchs ago, to die of natural causes. So uh, go Knut. This is rather amazing, and go Birjabrusa, who is still alive. He is, uh, as are Knut's children. During his life, Knut had four sons and a daughter, but it's kind of like when he took over, none of these were of age where they could take the throne. And instead, quite interestingly, Birjabrusa throws his support behind Sverka, the son of the previous king, Karl, who has been in exile in Denmark because he wasn't old enough to take the throne when his father was killed. It's a counterpunch by the Sverka dynasty. Like I said, they're in power, they're in exile, they're in power, they're in exile. So we will see in a future episode how this young Sverka does, or actually how Sverka II, as we should now call him, how he does. It must have been a pretty awkward funeral for Knut, uh, with Birjabrusa presumably already plotting how best to utilize the situation that the king's sons can't really take over just yet. Uh, But this naturally leaves Birjabrusa with a lot of political power. In fact, some authors, like Professor Harrison, gives Birger a lot of credit for the fact that Sweden remained peaceful and prosperous during his time as Jarl because he was able to straddle these various families that wanted the throne and he was able to work with them all, which gave the country some nice consistency in how it was ruled, even if a different family was on the throne. Uh, We'll have to wait a few episodes for that to develop, though, because next time we are focusing our energy, as we've said, on our new hometown, Stockholm. Yes, I'm really looking forward to that episode. Uh, It's going to be really fun. But just to recap of what we've seen today, because we've seen quite a few things happen. 
We started off with Eric the Ninth, or Eric the Holy, taking the throne after the murder of Sverker, who was killed by the Dane Magnus on Christmas Day. Magnus then kills Eric a few years later, who starts to become revered as a saint. Magnus himself doesn't last very long, though, as he's killed after just a year by Karl VII, son of Sverker. Karl lasts a little bit longer than Magnus, but is killed in our fourth murder by the supporters of exiled Knut, the son of Eric the Holy. Then Knut's reign starts well, but also sees the destruction of Sigtuna and the rise of a new powerful family of Jarls, the House of Bjelgl. How will this all end? Well, keep listening to find out. Absolutely, but for now it is time to read out a new review. This one is from the Czech iTunes page and it says, My new favourite podcast, perfect combo for any Scandi-obsessed history lover who fancies interesting history slash culture facts provided in a fun, entertaining way. Where has this podcast been all my life? Oh, thank you for that lovely five-star reviews. And uh, it's now a few uh, months old, probably, by the time this is released. Uh, we've only just spotted it as it was posted on the 4th of March by R.E. Barbara, which perhaps might even be the lovely Barbara who made our episode picture last week. Uh, I think it is. We'll have to get in touch. And check, yeah. Either way, thank you so much for that lovely review. Leaving reviews, that's really appreciated. Please do that on at whatever platform you listen to us on and don't forget to follow us on facebook and twitter to see some pictures to see that picture of the relics of eric the holy uh, we put all that kind of stuff up on uh, social media but for now it's goodbye from us yes goodbye hey there.